Welcome to the Journey of an Aesthete podcast. Comprehensive examination of all things aesthetic, the arts, the humanities, and what it means to be human. This is Journey of an Aesthete, and I'm very um, pleased, in fact, overjoyed to have Mike White from the Projection Booth podcast on my show. Um, I can't say enough good things about your show and what you do for cinema and podcasting and all the rest of it, and um, I'm happy to have you on my show for at least a couple of reasons. One reason is that I love the diversity of films you feature on your show. I love the uh, your your co colleagues, uh, Heather Drain, and the other folks that you have on. The way you talk about movies, and especially, I like your approach and your attitude. You have a very um, a very uh, non-combative, non-ideological, very at times even erudite and sophisticated way of talking uh, to your guests. And at the same time as all that, you also have a have a have a very personable nature, and there's no pretension, and there's no uh, nothing negative. It's just like a kind of a, sort of when people ask me about different podcasts, I say, well, I think the way Mike White um, handles or talks with guests should be an ideal that, that he should teach classes and how to how to conduct interviews. I really think that. I don't know. I hope I'm not being too effusive, but that's kind no. of. That's, Flattery will get you everywhere. That's kind of one of the reasons I ha had you on my show, because I look up to your style. So generally on this show, what I do is I start with a linear chronology of the guests. So basically the beginnings of what they've been doing, whatever it is we're discussing. It could be sculpture. It could be you know poetry. It could be movies. It could be television. could be all kinds of things. And then out of that very linear chronology, nonlinear things will start to happen. You know, Things will pop into the guest consciousness and ideas will come up and bubble to the surface. So um, how, uh, what's your feeling about proceeding that way, starting from the beginning of how your podcast came to be? Or we could even go back further. You could talk about the movies that you loved when you were a kid or, uh, or you're just basic biographical information. Anything that you think is important or germane, you can, you can speak uh, what you think about that. So, sure. Uh, yeah, in your hands. So, um, biographically, you've had this since, what, 2012, this podcast? Uh, I think it's 2011, I want to say. 2011. And so, I guess I want to ask is, how did you get as good as you are in doing this movie program? 
And, and moreover, when did you start to really educate yourself or become, uh, you know, literate about cinema and the movies? And, and t talk a little bit about how that came to be and uh, what comes to mind when I ask you about that. Well, I don't know how good the podcast is. It definitely could be better. Um, but, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I've been doing it since 2011, and so maybe practice makes proficiency, maybe. I mean, there's that whole Malcolm Gladwell thing about, you know, you have to practice for 10,000 hours. I'm definitely not at 10,000 hours yet, but uh, I'm, I'm getting close. Yeah, well, you've done a lot of shows, um, so that's part of it. But I, I'm interested in what were the first movies you saw that knocked you out and made you say, well, I love movies. Or maybe it was books. Maybe it was English literature. It could be anything. It could be sports. I don't know. What were the – going back to the very beginnings, what were the first stirrings of uh, your own artistic journey or, or the arts that you happened to appreciate or learn about? Well, I don't want to sound trite or anything, but my, my biggest influence when I was a kid was the Star Wars films and the original, what they call now A New Hope. I mean, I saw that when I was five years old. Oh, wow. And that just knocked me on my ass. I just wow. fell in love with it. It opened up so many things, and, you know, the, it gave me so many things and really helped kind of form the, my childhood. So when people talk about, you know, oh, George Lucas ruined my childhood, it's like, no, actually, it was my childhood. And every year, we're getting Star Wars toys, and then eventually, around the time of Return of the Jedi, kind of grew out of it. Um, it but I still love movies, still watched a lot of movies, and... That was a pastime that my mom and I enjoyed. We would go to the movies quite often, and then that morphed into a pastime for my friends and I. So we would go to the local video store, and you know, this was uh, the era of VHS was happening when I was like uh, coming up on my teenage years was when VHS was really there. And by the time I was in high school, Blockbuster Video had already. Killed a lot of the mom and pop shops, yeah. and I would go over there with my friends, and we would look for whatever we thought was some of the stranger fare. And once we, you know, once we had a car and we were able to go to the video store, nothing was going to stop us. I mean, that's great because I. So how, how I see your age. So you, you and I are, I think, roughly close in age. I'm fifty one. Okay, okay, yeah, I'm 47. You're 47, so we're, we're both Gen Xers, pr hopefully proud, at least I'm a proud Gen Xer. Hopefully you're a proud fellow Gen Xer. So, so Star Wars is a part of our childhood. Star Wars is this, because I saw it in 77, and uh, that's just this big event, clearly. Oh, yeah. this, big, this huge big event. I mean, speaking a little, a little differently, for me that year, the movie that, that made the greater impact uh, would have been Annie Hall. I was a kind of a strange kid. Because they came out, they came out the same year. Yeah, and yeah. but but they both made an impact. It was Annie Hall was the one that I I think I was drawn drawn more towards. But I I remember um, I remember seeing Star Wars and being impressed by the not only the size of the theater, but also the rapt attention of the entire audience. Many many of whom were I think eight years old, ten years old. That that somewhere between eight and fourteen or something. It's a large amount of people in that age group in that in the theater and i remember that it was almost um almost like a religious experience or at least like going to church in a way yeah but, you know the seriousness with which people took this film that, that first star wars film yeah yes. apparently i was pretty good in the theater my mom would take me when i was very young i remember being taken to a lot of shows that were 
fairly inappropriate things like uh, Young Frankenstein or Murder by Death or I mean they weren't necessarily taking me to R-rated fair that was you know the violent or overly sexualized those things but you know I remember watching all that jazz when it was first on VHS and that's I that was actually where I learned what the the F word meant I was like what is this why do they keep saying this word what does that mean (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, well, I saw all that jazz in the theater. Oh, nice. So I had a, I had a kind of a, a child. You probably would not approve of the kind of film film viewing I did because I did all the R-rated movies. I mean, for example, I saw, um, you, you name it. I saw, I saw Lipstick as a kid. Okay. Oh wow. The theater, and I saw Straw Dogs as a kid in the theater. So I was watching. I basically had Quentin Tarantino's film viewing habits. <laughs> basically the same because like, he saw those as a child. I think I believe. Um, and so there's that similarity. So yeah, I, I have trouble relating when people talk about how there's all these things they could not watch or did not watch. I have trouble often relating to that because I kind of watched everything. And then yeah, of course was... I hmm? go ahead. Oh, oh sorry, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. And of course people have very strong opinions about that because you you expressed uh, what is the movie you said that you uh, you said you saw a couple of R-rated movies. Uh, Death becomes her. Was that the one you mentioned? I don't uh, remember. No, I said uh, murder by murder death. by death. Yeah, the Agatha Christie. So I guess I don't know where people stand on that. Is that an okay movie for a fourteen-year-old to see or not? Without without dates, and I don't know. I think of that as kind of a very innocuous film, myself, oh, yeah. but I have no idea. Maybe you know, I'm just I'm so I'm so naive. I found out that people kids were not allowed to watch certain episodes of Eight Is Enough. Oh wow! Just because Toddy Bradford was out of line, like certain religious homes, and this was evidently a thing that there's whole shows that you know parents put their foot down. You can't watch this. You can't watch. Certainly couldn't watch Charlie's Angels or Three's Company. So there were a lot. There's a lot of strict child rearing certainly in this country well, in the '70s and '80s. Yeah, my folks were weird. Like there were scenes in The Jerk that they would have me leave the room for, but then also yeah. scenes. You know, I would I sat and watched The Shining with my folks, or yeah. uh, you know, the, the story I always tell is the first time I was refused uh, entry to an R-rated movie. I had already seen. I mean, I saw Blues Brothers when it came out, so I was eight years old when I saw Blues Brothers, and then I think it was two years later going to see uh, uh, Blade Runner and going up and trying to buy tickets to Blade Runner and getting refused, and I was like, no, my mom's just parking the car, and the woman behind the counter is like, yeah, right, kid, and then when my mom comes up, she's like, what's the holdup? Why don't you have the tickets? (laughs) Right. I mean, that's a, that's, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 these things are just kind of very personal. You know, just like cinema is both personal and collective. You know, those personal stories people have about their particular families or their particular viewing habits. And that's a very very personal thing having to do with your religion you were brought up in, certainly, uh, or or not, or religion you weren't brought up in, or political affiliation, and all sorts of things. I guess the size of families, too, you know. So... um, so when so, so it was Star Wars, but then what happens after Star Wars? Well, then what happens after Star Wars is Black Shampoo. By the time I was, uh, it was probably, well, it was exactly December 26, 1988, I believe, oh, wow. when we rented Black Shampoo at Blockbuster Video. Wow. And it was me and three of my friends yeah. and we couldn't believe this movie it was just incredible just so we had 
you're watching this film at, at home on a VHS, this exploitation oh, yeah. film. And so you're seeing it about 10 years after it was made, right? 11 years, right? Well, it was made 76. Uh, yeah. yeah, so this was, yeah, uh, yeah 10, 12, 12 years, years afterwards. afterwards, yep. And so you're watching it on a VHS at home. And um, what was your... I know, didn't you list this as one of your favorite movies? Oh, yeah. You did. Yeah. One of the things I like about your show, this is an aside, is that you, you champion movies like Black Shampoo that other people might disparage or you take seriously. That's, I just want to say that's another, another thing I'm, 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 I really like about You don't discriminate on the basis of, of, of these kind of categories of genre. And so you'll, you'll hold out Black Shampoo as, a, as an important film. So I... I, I that. But anyhow, go, go, go ahead. So, you, what, what, so what went to you guys' minds? You're watching this uh, film. Struck you about it? Oh well, gosh, we, we we really just couldn't believe that this was happening. <laughs> I mean, there were, of course, it, it, there were the sexy parts to it, but the sexy parts weren't really that sexy because you were talking about people from the 1970s and. Yeah. They're not necessarily the most attractive people in the world. But, um, yeah, so there's that. There's the mafia connection. There's uh, violence. There's, uh, you know, there's a chainsaw fight in this movie. There's pool cues that are impaling people. And it just, it was freaking nuts. And we had seen black exploitation films before this, but just nothing at this level. And with that and the incredible score, we were just hooked. And then this became kind of our Rocky Horror, like to the point where we would rent it all the time. We assigned characters. We weren't necessarily doing like a shadow cast in front of our TV, but it's just like, you know, oh, yeah, we'll call we'll call uh, uh, my friend Leon. He's the chauffeur, so he becomes this character. And Steve is Mr. Jonathan, and his girlfriend is Brenda. And so everybody had a thing and you know we yeah. were would memorize the lines and things like that and then start to make up stories about the movie like where there were lapses in time would be like oh well, what's happening during the time do you notice that she comes into the door here and then it takes about three minutes before she actually walks in the door over here what's happening what's in that hallway and we just we were nuts we were you know just stupid kids but we had a lot of fun with this and so yeah that's why it's like you know, I ended up watching this movie probably, I mean, between that and, you know, the, the book tour I went on a few years ago where I was showing it around the country and stuff. I mean, it, I probably have seen that movie probably 500 times. Wow. Well, um, there's movies I've seen 500 times. I mean, I've, I've seen The Last Detail easily that many times, which is wow. one of my favorite movies. I've seen maybe All That Jazz. I've seen maybe Tarkovsky's The Stalker. Well, I'm exaggerating maybe 10 times or in that. I mean, it's a, you know, I mean, to really love something, like to love Black Shampoo, when you love a movie like that, you become an expert on it, in a way, right? <clears throat> and when you become an expert on it, you're probably the best person to discuss it, if you think about it. So that's probably one of the things I like about your show, is that, you know, again, you come to the movie really knowing the film. Um, it was, you know, and you have, like, I have to, like, recently I was listening to um, a show you guys did on Solaris, speaking of Tarkovsky. And you guys go to town on that film, and you talk to that. You talk about that film with a seriousness that I I almost never hear. I mean, I've I've hung around some pretty highbrow film critics, but they they even they don't get into the weeds like you guys do. Wow. Um, you guys really you can see that you really guys really love this film. You may not understand all of it, and you're grappling with it, 
but it, I guess I, what I appreciate is the seriousness. You're like, well, this is a, we're going to try to figure this Solaris out and get, get inside this film. And in a way, to me, that's the same as Black Shampoo. You're kind of saying, well, you know, this film, there's something unique about this film that, um, that you uh, want to inhabit or understand. So did, did, so when you finally met Graydon Clark, because I'm getting too far ahead, and you had Graydon Clark on your show, or is that, is that um Yeah, I actually met him a few years prior to when he was on the show. Um, I used to, when I graduated from college, I ran a, a fanzine for a lot of years. Okay. And had written about Black Shampoo. Um, my friend Leanne wrote about it with me. We had a, you know, we would do these articles. It took me a long time before I actually had the gumption to actually write about it because um, it was just this kind of sacred text for me. Mm-hmm. And then it was, God, it was probably like a year or so after I get this email out of the blue. And it's from Graydon Clark. And he says, I hear you've been looking for me. And I'm just like, oh, my God. <laughs> wow. So, yeah, just the fanzine had traveled what around. Was, what, was that, what college did you go to and what zine was, was that that you, that you published? I, I went to the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Oh, that's a good and, school. Well, so you, oh, so are yeah. you originally from the Midwest? Yeah, yeah. I, I grew up, uh, well, I was born in Ohio, and then I moved up to Michigan when I was two, and I, so I've been here ever since. That's fantastic. You know, I went to, uh, I was in Michigan for four years for Interlock and Arts Academy in Traverse City. Oh, wow. And I went there, and that's where I really opened up my mind to many things. I was a music major there, but that put me in Michigan for a long time, and I used to travel to Ann Arbor a lot. And so oh, I, missed, yeah. I missed those days. Hell of a school. Yeah, it's a great school, and Michigan's kind of underrated. I think I sort of think you know, well, you know, Michigan's like it's it's pretty cool. It's not all, but um, so yeah. So you were, and so the zine I guess happened while you were in college or after, because usually afterwards, uh, yeah, afterwards. I was getting into zines. I had a friend of mine, Jeff, who actually was one of the uh, original people that I saw Black Shampoo with. Mm-hmm. He found that there was a uh, so there was a Tower Records, and I knew about the Tower Records because I was very into music in college. And he found that they had a whole zine section, and he picked up a zine called Asian Eye, and that. Mm-hmm ignited a lot of interest i was already interested in hong kong films and had started tracking down hong kong movies and it was like in that renaissance like when john woo was first being like talked about you know in hush tones and you know jackie chan like we already knew uh, him from the cannonball run movies and uh, uh what was it uh, the big uh, the protector but there was also a uh, battle at uh, Battle Creek or whatever the yeah. Big Brawl is what they ended up calling it. Yeah. And uh, and but it was like, oh yeah, he's making really good movies. You should check these things out. And so yeah, my friend was like, oh yeah, you like Hong Kong movies? Here's a whole zine about it. And that really again lit a fire under me. I was like, wow, this zine thing is pretty cool. And started getting into those. Well, and the, then, the zine culture of the '90s was really uh, really extraordinary. Oh yeah. I mean the zines. I, I was into Candy Strecker. Did you did you uh, read her? I was into Candy Strecker. I was into Pagan Kennedy. I would read a lot of different zines in the '90s. That was kind of like I guess was that the golden age for zines or people? I think so. I, I think, think I got. I came to the game a little late, but yeah. um, I mean, yeah, because things like Answer Me and some of those were already out there. I used to love. Um, Oh, God, what was that guy's name? Dishwasher Pete. He had the whole thing where he would go around to all these different cities and wash dishes. And yeah. uh, there was McJob that was yeah. fantastic. 
Yeah, I read both those when I could. But, you know, zines are works of art. They're just beautiful, you know, works of art. You know, well, they're, they're so personal. Just, they're personal, and people create them, and they're made with love. And they're actually, I think they're made with a lot, a lot of work and discipline. I mean, they're, they're just, um, it's really, they're like a genre unto themselves, I think. I think. Uh, so how long did you, did you do that, did you do that zine? Uh, I did that for, I mean, the first couple issues were like, you know, glue stick, typewriter, those kind of things. I did those fairly quickly because they were like eight, ten pages. And then as I went along, I started to challenge myself more. I eventually got into desktop publishing. I eventually started getting it professionally printed. Um, and that would take time and money. Um, and so I think I did it for, gosh, probably about... 10 years, something like that. And then I put together a collection of articles that was probably 2010, somewhere around there. And uh, then as I'm doing that book tour, I was down in Baltimore at Atomic Books, and there was a sign about um, the revenge of print. And I was like, okay, what is this? And they're like, well, we're asking people that used to do zines to do one final zine or one more zine and to do it all old school, mm-hmm. you know, go back to the photocopier, those kind of things. And I was like, I can do that. I want to do that. So I did... That one, which I think was issue 16, and then I did two more that were print-on-demand. And then I was like, you know what, I just, that was, by that time I was doing the podcast, I was like, I can't do both. Hmm. Yeah, so podcasting, yeah, so so you clearly were starting to love movies, or had always loved movies, and start, but what I'm trying to, what interests me, and because I, it's sort of a, uh, to me, a mystery, is your your diversity of taste because you, you, you know, you like black shampoo, but you also, as I said, did this great episode on, on, on Tarkovsky Solaris and you've done episodes on uh, head over heels or chilly scenes of winter and even revet films and also classic Hollywood. And when did you start to grasp the entirety of cinema or sort of start to, uh, you know, expand out of it. Would you say it's black shampoo that did that or possibly or? No, it was probably when I got into college. I mean, I was aware of other cinema. Um, I had seen some classic films, but not that many. But fortunately, when I was getting into school, it was still the time of uh, film groups and film co-ops. And they would... Um, run these different double, triple features on weekends. And there was a magazine in Ann Arbor called Current. And I think it still happens. And I would go through Current, and I would just look at all of these film listings and be like, okay, Friday night, I'm going to go see these two movies. Saturday night, I'm going to go see these two movies. And if I could, I might squeeze this one in and just have this all mapped out. So between classes, where I was taking film classes, and then this... Uh, kind of self-education then it was just like uh, it opened up my mind to so many things I always have to credit a friend of mine um, who I lived with uh, one of our housemates 
who came home one night and he was just like, you know, I'm going to go over to, we had this thing called Top of the Park, where they would show movies at the top of this parking lot. And they had, you know, it was kind of a festival. And he's like, I'm going to go see this movie. It's called Yo Jimbo. And I was like, Yo Jimbo, that is a hilarious name because we live with a guy named Jim and we used to always call him Jimbo. It's like, that's a hilarious name. I want to go see that movie with you. Yeah. And that started a lifelong love of Kurosawa because mm-hmm. I had no idea that, that a samurai is. movie could be as funny as that movie is. Have you, speaking of Kurosawa, did you ever have, have a chance to see uh, Ursula, his Soviet film, on the big screen? I haven't yet, and I have managed to see a number of his things on the big screen. Not everything, of course, because yeah. he's done so many. Yeah, he's so but, but at school, they were offering, like, oh, yeah, we're going to show Ron this semester or Seven Samurai. Uh, the, there was a Japanese society up there, and they showed Seven Samurai on the big screen. It's just, oh, my God, it, it's just so glorious. Yeah, I mean, it's, uh, again, kind of like uh, uh, anytime you discover something, and if you become an expert on it, you kind of learn something from it, don't you? You kind of grow. It becomes a oh, part yeah. of you. And I, I would say that Black Shampoo was doing that for you as much as uh, Kurosawa, as much as, as, as uh, Jimbo, you know, right? I mean, yeah. I, I mean, mean, it kind of taught, taught me film language, things that I didn't necessarily know. Mm-hmm. I was learning more about editing than I had before. I mean, thank goodness for Earl Watson. There were things, I remember my first film class, like, okay, is there a name for this effect when mm-hmm. you go from you know, color to a negative before cut. And the guy's like, no, there's not a name for that. And I was like, oh, okay, because I use that all the time in black shampoo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's, uh, I mean, film film theory and film language, as you know, is its whole its own thing. Oh, yeah. Its own world. And I have my own biases and opinions. We can get into that or not. I mean, I'm, you know, but I've read all that stuff. Who, who are your teachers at your University of Michigan? Well, I had Ira Konigsberg, who okay. wrote the uh, pretty well-known encyclopedia film. Yep. I actually got into an argument once because he thought that Fistful of Dollars came before Yojimbo, and I corrected him in class. He was not a big fan of me. Hmm. Well, yeah. I mean, things, are, things are what they are. Things are made when they're made. The, day, the production yeah. date of a film is what it is, you know. Yeah. What can I tell you? And I had uh, Frank Beaver, who actually helped out Altman on a couple things when Altman yeah. did a semester in Ann Arbor. Oh, well, oh, so you mean when he did his plays, the uh, Secret Honor and, and that? Secret thing? Honor, yep. Yeah. So well, that's why we had uh, Frank on that episode when we did that. Yeah. Yeah, but so, so that means you had Donald Freed twice on your show? Because I know you had him on... I mean, you've done so many shows. I know you had Donald Freed on for Executive Action. Uh, yes. And he was uh, one of the writers. Yeah, for both of those. Yes, and Secret Honor. Okay, yeah. So he's a And sometimes we might record an interview and split it up if it's too long, but I think with Donald Freed, we actually did have him on twice. Okay, so you so you go from a zine, and you're, you're, taking, I mean, you're taking classes at University of Michigan, and, and what would you say were the changes that were happening inside of you and your understanding of film. It could be genre, it could be actors that you fall in love with or actors you fall out of love with or actresses or, or anything or movies that a style, maybe there was a style of movie that you suddenly liked that you didn't used to like or know about. I guess Kurosawa would be one example, but what are some other examples of you know, that time in which you're, start, you're starting to expand your consciousness and, 
and uh, what comes to mind when you think about that, that your well, journey? The, the first, first thing that comes, comes to mind is that one of the, the – so when, when I first got to college, I'm, I'm from this little town. You know, uh, it's like I think, uh, you know, for freshman, junior, senior, sophomore – there was like one black person per class and maybe there were like two homosexuals that I possibly knew. There were rumors, there were aspersions, these kind of things. Very, very small town life. And then I go to the University of Michigan and my mind is blown. And I will say my first reaction was one of absolute fear. And I'm just like, oh my God, there's so many different people. Look at all these Asian people and Jewish people. And I, I've never seen these types of people before. Oh my goodness. And then, and and one of the things was like, oh my God, you know, here's all these gay people, and I was in classes because I took a lot of women's studies classes, and I'm like, I'm, I'm in these classes with gay people, I can't handle it. And then by the time I'm a junior, one of my favorite memories was working at a blockbuster video where, for whatever reason, it wasn't even the classy blockbuster because we had three in town, and one was pretty upscale, one was pretty low scale, and one was middle of the road. I was in the middle of the road. Okay. We had the most incredible Amaldivar collection that I had ever seen. Like, huh. everything, you know, this was before they banned Time Me Up, Time Me Down. Oh, they wow. had Dark Habits was there. Oh, so, so you're we talking were... about all the, stuff, all the stuff in the late 70s. Yeah. Yeah. So all the, you yeah. know, young, handsome, gorgeous Antonio Banderas... And I would rent these movies and take them home, mm-hmm. and or not rent them, but you know, had my week, my pretty much you just take movies when you work there. Take the movie out, take it home, and it would be me and my nine housemates, who, as far as I know, are all pretty, you know, straight white males, and we're all just watching these on Maldivar films, and no one's like freaking out because there's gay content to it or anything, and we're just enjoying the movies to enjoy them. And I was like, that. so when you talk about how movies change and how I change with them, I mean, that was one thing where it's just like, oh, this is really nice. Yeah, it's, that's very interesting. So, so, you, so that's starting to happen, and you're starting to see these different kinds of movies. So, when you, so from your first year at University of Michigan to your last year, clearly you're having a different response to having a lot of people around you from mm-hmm. all walks of life. Um, so that's starting to change. You're starting to get more comfortable with that, or you sort of you sort of figure because you know I grew up in big cities like New York City, Manhattan. You know, for example, I, you mentioned Black Shampoo. I saw Black Shampoo on Forty Second Street. Oh wow! You know, you know, so as and as a child. Okay. So yeah. So you know, so it's hard. It's hard for me to understand, I guess. Um, but you know, I'm also I've got a lot of small town in my background because my dad was a Hoosier. He's from Indiana, and so and of course. You know, but I'm just saying, clearly something's starting to change in you, and you're sort of, sort of, I guess, um, getting comfortable around people, oh, more yeah. comfortable. But I think, do you think that that part of that could be something in your nature, your character? Because one of the things I pick up from Projection Booth is you have a you have a very high curiosity level, which I appreciate, and I think that curiosity translates itself into dealing with people really well. I think. So maybe you bring to the table. You may have been initially freaked out or overwhelmed, but I think that you're something kicked in that's inside of you that kind of maybe was more open to people, perhaps, or you know, brought some openness. Uh, well, yeah, I, I, I really credit. credit I, I did some, some traveling, traveling when I was 17. My folks sent me over to the UK for a month, oh, wow. and 
I really credit that for a lot because, again, coming from a smaller town, I mean, it wasn't like where I grew up was like, you know, one main street and a street that crossed it called First Street, and that was it. I mean, it was a fairly big city, but it was just very, very white, very, very white, you know, and it's like, we're, it's that whole like white flight from Detroit kind of thing. So we're in the suburbs, we're, you know, downriver from Detroit. And so it's just like, you know, pretty white bread kind of thing, but going over to England and then having to figure things out. Like I wasn't on my own when I was there, but it was enough that it's like, okay, get from where you're staying in Tolworth over here, get to Wimbledon and take the train to Waterloo station. And then we're going to meet here. And that's when our day begins. And that was pretty much every day while I was over there. And just the idea of navigating trains was something I had never done. I'd never taken public transportation before. So so I always credit that as being something that really was a very formative experience. What years would have those been that you were in Britain? That would have been, that was summer of 89. Wow. See, summer of 89, I was graduating from college, from music, from New York Conservatory. And that was, that must have been a time. You were traveling then. I started to do some travel. Am I right uh, that that was a big travel time for a lot of people in our age group? So for some reason, it seems like between 87 and the early 90s, maybe, maybe travel was a little more inexpensive then in those years. I don't know. It just seems like that's something people, I think, were able to do then. It could be. I just yeah. remember seeing an ad late at night, probably while I was watching the young ones on MTV, huh. and it was for a company called EF, Education Foundation. And it wasn't like you were going over as an exchange student. It was go over, spend four weeks here, we'll take you out pretty much every day, and you'll see different sites, different historical places. And then we did two weekend trips, one to Paris, and then one was supposed to be to Amsterdam, but they ended up canceling that. So I went to Germany instead because I had a German exchange student when I was in high school. So I went and visited him and his family. So, yeah, it was just, I was surprised, very surprised that my folks got behind this and mm -hmm. sent me over. So now when I get put into a city or travel or anything, I always, I always feel like I feel more comfortable. I don't know if I am more comfortable, but I'm just like, okay, let's go. Let's figure it out. Where's the metro stop? You know, how do I speak the language? Let's, yeah. let's do it up. Yeah, I mean, I think I think outlook is really important, and I think a positive outlook. You know, I think everybody's everybody's experience is, is so different, and I'm, I'm really convinced more. The older that I'm, 51, the older I get, the more I'm convinced that there's not really a right or wrong experience. I mean, people just bring their own story to the table, and they just have to find a way to make that story mesh with what's going on to be the best that they can. You know, I think we all do that in, in various ways. So whether you're whether you're traveling to Great Britain or traveling to Calcutta or, uh, you know, you're going to travel and you're going to have to deal with whatever you experience and that in turn is going to change you, right, in some way. Just like writing the zine will change you, you know. Right. Um, I also think that my love of research helps out with that stuff because before I go to a place, I tend to do a lot of research. And that same thing happens happened with the zine, happened in college, happened in high school, and now happens with the podcast. Well, I definitely see that pays off in the podcast. So you, you definitely, so I'm sure you researched Tarkovsky and Solaris, right, when you did that show. You just didn't oh, yeah. go in cold and, and um, <laughs> no. Yeah. So, I mean, 
I know that's laughable to think about somebody going in and going in cold, cold with Tarkovsky, but you know, who knows? But um, that really pays off. But do you do you find that you get frustrated with other people uh, that don't want to do the research or the work, or they kind of want to coast, or you know? And then you might come in contact with people that I'm not saying that they BS, but they kind of kind of don't want to give it the same commitment. Do you find that you have to have to deal with that sometimes? Like, yeah, I mean. I deal, I deal with that more when I listen to other people's podcasts than necessarily the folks that are on my podcast. Okay. Most of the people that I have on are more than willing to do the work. And right. if they're not, they kind of don't get asked to come back. Yeah. I mean, speaking of which, um, I mentioned Heather. Is it Heather Drain? Mm-hmm. Heather Drain is, is excellent on your show. But I, I want to make a special mention. I hope. One person that comes to mind uh, is is it Mate, uh, pronunciation is it Maitland McDonald? Yeah, she's a serious scholar, film scholar, and and I really like her scholarship. I really love her work. I mean, she's done some good work, of course, on Dario Argento, which she's talked about. But she also did a really great stuff on '90s exploitation films, if I'm correct. Do you know the book I'm talking sure. about? Something about filmmakers on the edge. Was that, that hers? Uh, gosh. I I don't remember. I, I think I still have that book, and it's interviews with like Wes Craven and Fred Olin Ray and and Andy Sedaris and all kind of whole assortment. I think Graydon Clark is in there. I don't know, but she interviewed these exploitation. It's a huge coffee table book, but I think it's from the nineties. I think that's hers because I know that she does stuff like that. But I always appreciate when she's on your show because she always um. Is there anything you want to say about her in particular? Or, or well, yeah, she's another person that it is, you know, she, like a you know, friend of mine once said, oh, you cover everything from the art house to the outhouse, and Maitland is another person who has no pretensions, and she will talk about anything, which I absolutely love, and that's what I love about so many of my co-hosts, is just they will talk about whatever style of movies and just yeah, I I mean. So they're basically I, all in with your project. So it's all so everybody you have on is committed to your vision. And your, much, your yeah. vision is this highly inclusive vision. Just yeah. like on my show, my show wants to be about all of the arts. Like a, I'm going to have a potter on this show. I don't care. The potter doesn't have to be famous. It's just somebody talks about pottery. I'll have a ballet dancer. You know, basically, it's going to aim to be as inclusive as possible, and not just have any you know, any. And I really appreciate that. I mean, hey, art is art. Yeah, that's absolutely. I still get arguments with some cinema snobs about things like that. They can't understand why I like, you know, some of the things I like. Um, you know, that's all. I mean, just look at all the debates about Star Wars, right? People still debate. You have the anti-Star Wars crowd and the pro-Star Wars crowd, and they kind of duke it out. Um, do you ever get invi- invited in, into those uh, into those match squabbles and matches, or do you avoid them, or? <laughs> I try to avoid them. I mean, I know that, I mean, it's a tough situation because you're actually fighting against the guy who created the whole thing because it's like, dude, I like this movie from 1977. I don't like this version from 1997. Quit fucking with your own stuff. <laughs> well, that's another, yeah, we could go into into, into the rabbit hole of George Lucas's oeuvre and the different films in there. I'm not, I'm, I'm, unlike you, I'm not an expert in Star Wars series. You are an expert, and so I defer, well, I defer to your, your judgment on that. I don't know how much of an expert I am because I don't know any of this extended universe stuff. It's so like you stopped I, watching it? Or? 
What's that? Have you stopped watching them or? No, I still go to the theaters, but the you know, like when they're showing this character in the background and people are like, oh, that's you know, a foreskin uh, nebula or whatever, and I'm just like. Who is that? I have no idea. Oh, well, they were on Rebels, and then they were also on uh, The Clone Wars, and there's 15 books about them, and they once, uh, you know, sold shoes to Han Solo. And it's like, oh, of, of course they did, because everybody knows everybody in the Star Wars universe. It's a, it's a universe, sure. I mean, I think that... Um, uh, uh, but, you know, the thing, the thing that, that marvels me, Mike, is the fact that humans create things like that. I mean, the fact that a human being, George Lucas, came up with that, inspired by religious traditions and mythology and who know, heaven knows what else, in his own love of movies, that's pretty remarkable. Mm-hmm. Like, it seems to me that even if you didn't like Star Wars, it, it seems to me that it would be incumbent about, about you to at least respect that. Right. Like, even if you didn't love it. That's what I, that's what I don't get. I mean, there's something to respect in that, the fact that humans, a human created that, that touched so many people. And it had such a long, has such a long reach. That's pretty impressive. I gotta say, it's pretty impressive. I mean, I understand there's sour grapes because it did change the way that people see movies. It mm-hmm. changed the whole idea. I mean, this it's the same trap that we're in right now, where it's like, you know, that I see the phenomenon of your opening gross and people chasing those numbers. And, yeah. and then also the weirdos who just like, you know, Oh, did you see the numbers this weekend? And this had 1.3 million. And it's like, who cares? You know, was it a good movie or was it a bad movie? Did you enjoy <laughs> yeah. it? Was it, did it say something? Right. And it's all about the money and it's about the rotten tomato score. And it's like, just give me your own opinion. Can you do that? Rather than have all this schadenfreude about, you know, how much money it made or didn't make. Yeah. But, I mean, I kind of blame that going all the way back to, like, Star Wars and Jaws, where it's like the 70s cinema was just so groundbreaking. And then it's like those two things come along, you know, right punch and a left hook. And then it suddenly becomes, oh, now we have to worry about, you know, blockbusters. And then it becomes the blockbuster summer. And now it becomes... Did you make more money on this than you did last weekend? Is, did, is Endgame going to make more than Avatar? Who cares? Yeah, it's a, diff- it's a difficult question because, you know, you could, you could say, well, Jaws and Star Wars. Some people say Jaws and Star Wars ruined cinema. Or they can say that. Um, but that's a, very, that's a very strange way of looking at cinema because I'm not sure there is one narrative like that, you know? Right. right? I mean, even, you know, because the, the, real, the real proof in the pudding or the eating is, you know, really highbrow film directors, when they're honest about their taste, always appreciate really well-made commercial films. Uh-huh. Like an example of that is, you know, Robert Bresson really loved, um, what was the James Bond movie that was out in 82 when his La Jeanne was out? Was it, was oh. it, um, it was that Bond. He said he was impressed with it. Hmm. Was it Living Daylights or I don't I don't remember. But he yeah, that would have been about the time I started watching Bond, so it might have been that or yeah. Octopussy and or he, Never he, Say he, Never he, Again. He had yeah, I think it was Never Say Never Again. And he had, he actually had complimentary things to say about it as a film. Um, and even like Andrei Tarkovsky like was a fan of Terminator Two, I think, or like Terminator Two. You know, um, Jacques Rivette. Yeah, what's, hmm? what's not to love, you know? Yeah, Jacques Rivette, one of his favorite films is, is Showgirls, I think, was, which is interesting. I mean, these are all these little, because they're not, because I think Jacques Rivette and um, 
Robert Bresson and Tarkovsky, they're not looking at these films in a sociological way. Like, they're not uh -huh. looking at the numbers. They're looking at, they're just responding to it on a visceral level as filmmakers, you know, and, and appreciating it, appreciating it for what it is, you know. It doesn't mean they love it. It doesn't mean that in some level what those films are doing aren't opposed to what their project is, of course. But they're able, I think, to get outside of their own, you know what I mean? I think that that's, I think often artists sometimes can be like that. Oh yeah, which is which is good. I think George Lucas is like that. I think George Lucas. I mean, heck, you know. I mean, uh, uh, George Lucas's early films are very different than what he went on to make, right? Oh yeah. I mean, I mean he, he always, always talks, talks about going back and making art films. I'm like, please, please, I want to see he that. He, he talks about it. He hasn't done it, but he talks about it. Yeah. I mean, I know I had Andrew Bajowski. I'm going to have Andrew Bajowski on my show, and he he's a big fan of um, well, he's a big fan of the Rocky series. And we talked a lot about the different Rockies. And um, I think he wrote an essay for M Plus One, I think, a few years back, where he opened up with George Lucas's statement about, I want to make a personal film. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think he said, well, I think he said what you said here. I think he said, please do it. We're waiting for it. But, um, yeah. But that's, uh, you know, he will or he won't. No, I mean, when, when you look, look at THX 1138 and American Graffiti, Those are both it's, it's like, like you, you can't get two more different films that actually kind of tell a similar story about people wanting to leave where they're at. Mm -hmm. But my God, they're, they're gorgeous to look at. They're technically brilliant. And I want to see more of that. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, he's still, he's still, I don't know, I don't know his age, but he's, I don't think he thinks he's going to be around, but that's up to him. Right. So, uh, do you want to talk about individual shows on your podcast? That is, sure. Um, I'm open to whatever you would like. Um, so, uh, Chili Scenes of Winter, that was a long show. I love the fact you had Daniel Kramer on and, and, uh, and talk about Joe Michael and Silver's film. Take a little film like that um, and just devote two and a half hours to it and talk to John Hurd and, and everybody, Amy Robinson. Um a show like that, when you so how much when you prepare a show like that, do you just wrangle all the parties and say this is what we're going to do and and um, yeah, with that one, Daniel actually came to me because I had not seen that movie before, and he recommended it, and he was able to actually give me a tip on uh, Joan Micklin Silver's contact address because he had um, interviewed her before, I believe. Yep. And so, yeah, that kind of started the ball rolling. So, when it comes to a show, I mean, I usually usually try to find the interviews first and see what I can get as far as that goes. Um, and then with that film, since so many people uh, were involved that still love it mm -hmm. and who were so invested in it, I mean, having the three big producers on that with uh, Griffin Dunn, Amy Robinson, and Mark Metcalf, that was fantastic. And then John Hurd still had a ton of great memories about it. So, yeah, I was able to, to get all those folks behind it as well, which was terrific. Yeah, you you have a show like that, but then you'll have the, your Manhunter show. Mm -hmm. And you have the great Tom Noonan on. Oh, yeah. He's an incredible artist and actor and writer. And just, you know, your, your show will go there. If you'll get Tom Noonan, you'll get him on your show and he'll talk about his experiences. And um, when did you discover his work? Uh, I think the first time I saw, well, I mean, I saw Manhunter probably when I was in high school on VHS. So, 
I've been a fan of his since then, since he was such a standout. And then, I mean, the, we just recorded a show on Wolfen, and he had a really good part in that, well, which yeah. I had seen. Albert gosh. Finney. Right? Yeah. Isn't Albert Finney? Yeah. God, I haven't seen that in ages. So you're going to do a show on Wolfen. Yes. Well, I'm going to listen to that. I'm going to listen yeah. to that. That's it. I had a really great conversation about that one. Yeah. And you also did Looker. Oh, yeah. I mean, Another Albert Finney action hat. film. Yeah, Albert Finney. <laughs> pull things out of the hat. Yeah. You'll, you'll do a show on, on Looker. Um, yeah, I've always been a fan of Looker. Yeah. And uh, that was one I uh, heard another podcast talk about it. And I was just like, yeah, you guys, okay. Yeah, you're talking about this movie. But I would like to talk more about it. And I'd like to, to kind of get into the cracks and talk about this. And that one, I was so fortunate because I think that was another Heather episode, but our yep. third on that was Marjorie Conrad, who was actually on America's Next Top Model. Yeah. And so her being an actual model talking about a movie about models was fantastic. And then she's a filmmaker as well. That's the way to do it. If you're going to do a show on a subject, that's the comprehensive way to do it. Instead of the half-ass way of do it, it's just, you know, too, too often I think people just... I think, see, I think I like about your, your show is that it's not like a soapbox. I mean, I guess it's a soapbox for the movies, right, for the, for the individual kind movies. Of. But it's not a soapbox in the other kind of way, which I, I find there's too much of, especially in social media and the Internet, where people are just, just there to tear something down or just to, you know, it's kind of. Yeah. You know. I, I think, think we've only talked, talked about a handful of movies where we actually didn't like them. And, I mean, I really tried to find things to like about something like Battlefield Earth, but <laughs> yeah. But I wanted to know again, I mean, some of these shows that we do, it's kind of like a, it's an autopsy. And it's like, okay, why did this movie end up the way that it was? Yeah. I mean, we're doing a show on World War Z, and it's like, okay, it's an okay movie. It's, it's barely a movie, but it's a movie. And why is it the way that it is? Especially when you look at Max Brooks's book and you're like, how did that become this? And so looking at all those screenplays in between and reading those drafts and then reading the stories and it's just like, oh, okay, this is how this became this. Would you say that University of Michigan was an influence in, in thinking that way? Uh, when Probably, you yeah. Yeah. What would you say that is? Would you say it's just kind of interesting how a movie's put together? In a craft point of view or sort of a craft sense? Or? Well, University of Michigan, and you might chafe uh, under this, but at least when I went there, it was much more of a film theory school than a filmmaking school. Okay. Maybe had I stuck around for a fifth year, then I think I could have gotten my hands on like a 16 millimeter camera and some better video equipment, but it was like, I'm this weird freak that graduates in four years, and they're just like, oh, yeah, you shouldn't even apply to be in this class until you're a senior. And then I get in there, and I, I realize, oh, there's all these other classes that I could take after this, but I'm not about to stick around. I'm sorry, this costs way too much. But, you know, between the the film theory that I was getting from, like, an Ira Konigsberg or a, a Hugh Cohen or even, um, you know, Herbert Eagle – and then I go into Susan's White, Susan White's class, and oh, she's talking right. about, um, you know, uh, Freudian theory and Lacan and, and mm -hmm. feminist filmmaking and looking at these films, just you know, taking the big sleep apart and looking at all of the 
different images and they're taking Chinatown apart and saying like, okay, look at all of the motifs of two eyes and one eye being bad. And it's just, yeah, those well, kind of things big sleep, did you really you light a fire. You might have studied the way that I did. Did you study through the Laura Mulvey, Pam Cook thing on Big Sleep? Remember Laura Mulvey had all these graphs on Big Sleep and the intricacy I, of that script? I think it was it was one of those theorists, Pam, Pam Cook. Or, I definitely read Mulvey, I mean, as far as the, uh, the narrative pleasure um, yeah. Yeah, essay. Well, this is, and, this, yeah, this is the women in film noir. It's a separate. Yes. And I think there was a long thing on Big Sleep because we studied it. We used that book. That was in 87. When we did that, so that, that it's funny you mentioned that because I did that same kind of that yep. same study. Oh, the it was big, fantastic! The Big Sleep is a really tricky movie. Oh yeah, that's Hell a yeah, mind-boggling movie. <laughs> I mean, I mean, Big Sleep is almost like the the uh, the James Joyce uh, <laughs> classical Hollywood film. It's almost like a, a crying out loud, like Finnegan's Wake. Oh yeah, it's not a straightforward movie in any. In any oh respect. hell no! <laughs> in any respect. Um, what do you think about younger audiences? Do you think younger audiences, when I say younger, I mean, say someone 16 or 18 or 20, do you think they're going to be able to sort of look at the big sleep and get out of it similar things or different? You know, things? I don't see why not. Yeah. I mean, as long as they're willing. I mean, I'm sure there's tons of stuff in the big sleep that I don't get. I mean, I pick up weird little things from all over the place. So like even looking at like, I don't know, the, uh, uh, what type of card Philip Marlowe has in his uh, vehicle to say what type of gas he can get, you know, the whole ration card thing. It's like, okay, if I didn't see someone swap out a ration card in a Warner Brothers cartoon, I think it was the Gremlins swapped it out in the airplane that Bugs Bunny was in, I would have never thought to look for that. I wouldn't have known what that was. Right. And it took me years to figure that out because that's not something that they necessarily teach you in school. They're oh yeah they had these different types of rations for things and you could have an a ration or a b ration and that's why it was an insult for the gremlin to swap out the ration card <laughs> that's 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 a complicated business i mean oh hell yeah that's um so are there any uh you said that you earlier that you wish your show could be better or you'd want to improve it what is that i, I I'm, I'm guessing you need more like technological things right I'm yeah, I mean, it can always sound better. Yeah, but that because that's the only thing I would really. Ch I mean, again, that even that I have no problems with. I think it sounds great. But I'm just trying to say, this guy has a great show. He knows how to talk to people. He has people. He has gets some pretty cool people on, and he has a he treats them with respect, which I think you know. Again, I wish more people did that. Um, and, uh, and so I'm saying, what's he got to change, you know? I mean, I guess you could quibble about movies that you want to feature. I may want you to cover the last detail or, or cover how Ashby shampoo, but maybe you have other, other fish to fry or you have other, you know, maybe you, I don't know, but that's, that's, you know, that's talking about individual films, you know? Yeah, yeah, next, next year is not going to make people very happy. <laughs> Why? What's <laughs> happening next year? I'm focusing in, I, so... I was taking, you know, get suggestions from people, and I'll, I'll 
get those. I'll make a list of them. I have a list going of what movies I want to cover, and I was kind of taking those and, you know, shuffling the deck of cards and, and, and flipping them together, and I start putting them onto, uh, like, a, a map that I do, and I'm just like, okay, January, how do I want to start this thing? Okay, and September, that's going to be Czech films. November is going to be noir. October is going to be horror, and December is going to be whatever, and I'm just, like, going through all this stuff, and, you know, maybe sometimes February is, like, black exploitation, but I'm not sure. And I'm just going through this, and I start lining up all this stuff, and I'm just like, oh, yeah, that movie came out in 1969, and then I, I put another one, I'm like, oh, that one came out in 1969. Oh, okay. oh and, and that one came out in 1969. So I'm just going through, and I'm realizing that the theme of next year, or at least probably 50% of the movies are all being made in the year 1969. So are you doing model shop? I am not doing model shop, but I am doing quite a few other things. <laughs> I am actually spending a whole month next year talking about Cinema Novo, which I've never done before because I look for blind spots. You know, you've given me all these compliments, but I will say, like, I I feel like I don't know shit about shit. And it's like, I don't, I, I have yet to see very many, if any, Brazilian films. And mm-hmm. hey, why not learn about these, you yeah. know? I mean, the fact that you want to learn about them and watch them is, uh, is, is I think that's, that's, that's great. That's really what matters. I mean, I use the show as an excuse sometimes to, to challenge myself, yeah, and to watch stuff. I mean, you heard the Solaris episode. I couldn't watch Solaris without falling asleep. Mm-hmm. And I said, okay, that's it. Let's do Solaris. And I'll, yeah. I'll get a pot of coffee on, and I will watch this darn movie. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, that, you know, what do you, what do you make of that? No, I mean, not the going to sleep, but what do you make about the fact that you want to do a show like that, and you have people on that seem to relish talking about Solaris? Clearly, they're not all falling asleep. No, they're not falling asleep. They're not falling asleep, and maybe maybe you are, maybe you aren't. You said that you did, but I mean, clearly you clearly you got something out of Solaris, you know. Oh yeah, no, it was fantastic. Once I finally made it through that stupid driving scene, I was all in. You know that that was the barrier to entry was that driving scene. Huh? You mean through the tunnels and the seventies? Yeah, with the seventies highway and. I was just, it was so hypnotic in that music and the way the music was coming up and just, man, I just, it was putting me under. I tried it three times and every single time I was gone and finally I just waited. I think I made it probably, if the, if the sequence is five minutes, I made it through four minutes and 30 seconds each time before I was asleep and finally just pushed through it made it all the way through. I mean, there's there's an aspect of Tarkovsky's films. He would not talk of, of them in this way, but there's definitely a late 60s head movie, trippy, oh, yeah. psychedelic aspect to his work. But that's in the film, but it's also an avant-garde experimental film. Mm-hmm. But the thing about him is that that aspect of his, those, his, that aspect of those movies doesn't come from any of those pop things, references. Right. For him, they come from his, from his spirituality and his commitment, which is really extraordinary. So the oh, origin, God, his use of artwork is amazing, too. Yeah, it is amazing. So in other words, but he gets at this place that probably a lot of hippies would have liked, maybe, or people interested in altering their consciousness, you know. 
because um, that's kind of what he was into. Well, yeah, that was one of my theories on the show. Was like, do you think that he's hypnotizing you so that you feel the rest of the movie differently? You know, and it, I mean, I to me, that's a valid thing. Yeah, I mean, actually, I, actually, I wanted to say that on the show that I agree with that theory. Oh, good. I'm reminded that I mean, I don't. I think that that's um, clearly that's what he, that's what he's trying to do. There's a lot of you know. Again, I'm sure you encountered some. Did you encounter film theorists that got you angry because you felt they were kind of getting too far afield of the film or bringing too many extraneous things that had nothing to do with the film. Did you, have you encountered that or do you feel that that can be a problem? Just wondering. I used to, there, there were times in the past where I would think, what are you talking about? You are just, you know, like, Oh, I was reading, I was watching this film and then, uh, Oh God, I'm about to quote, quote room two, three, (laughs) seven. Oh I was watching this no, movie, yeah, and then my son came in and had a drawing, and it said, I have a splitting headache, and then this clicked, and you know, and those are the kind of film theorists where it's just like, eh, it's a little much, you know, yeah. but okay, you know, it, there's such a thing as synchronicity, and you know, like, uh, uh, God, I'm trying to remember, there's a, a word that came up the other day, and it just kept coming up in conversation, I'm just like, what is going on, this is really freaky, but those things happen. But, yeah, there were times where, when I was younger, I would re- read film theorists, and I'm just like, yeah, you're kind of going off the deep end here, buddy. But now I, I crave, like, the real close readings of stuff. And now I crave, like, those BFI books or the yeah. uh, uh, Devil's Advocates mm-hmm. and um, cultographies. I mean, I love those well, if things. It's just like if deep good. dive. Yeah, if they're good. I mean, you, you're kind of doing that on your show. You're kind of doing almost a layperson's version of a BFI in a way, right? Is that how you see it? Yeah, I in a way, so. you're kind of like a regular guy saying, "Well, we're going to be like regular guys or regular people, um, but we're going to have we're going to have the seriousness of a BFI." Mm-hmm. So when you talk about like Cleo and Leo, we're going to be serious about it. We're going to have the stars of this movie on the on the thing, and we're gonna we're gonna compare oh, yes. we're gonna compare it to Switch. I mean, I strongly disagree with you about Switch. You know that that's all, all fair. And Blake Edwards, but but anyhow, we're gonna still gonna we're gonna um uh, we're gonna do it in a BFI way. But you can listen to the show and disagree. Oh sure. And, and hopefully, I'm not saying things in such a way where I'm just like, if you like this film, you are an idiot. You know, it's right. like, who, what what does that do? You know, come on. Right. I mean, that's the respect part that, that I've been praising on this show so much that you, that you have that built-in kind of. I think it's civility. And I think I think you maybe you were just born with it, or maybe you acquired it in, just in life, or going maybe it was Britain, maybe it's a combination of many things. But um, it serves you well in, in some of these, and I think in some of these shows it might really be um, indispensable. Can you can you think of a show that you've done where the movie's particularly controversial, maybe or maybe divisive, where you know, <laughs> other than the last action hero, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> where I almost lost my mind. Wow. Uh, the episode that we did on oh, what's that movie um, with Bill Paxton? Oh, Near Dark. Okay. That was one of my favorite discussions in the entire world because I don't like Near Dark. Really? Uh, my co-host uh, Rob on that episode thought it was pretty good. He was kind of in the middle, and then our other co-host on there, Ed Pettit, loves the movie. Yeah. And. It was just such a great discussion because, again, we're not tearing each other down. We're just like, well, I didn't really care for this. And it's like, well, I really like that, and here's why I liked it. And I would say, one, here's why I didn't necessarily like it. And we had this mutual respect, and it was so nice. And 
you know, by the end, we were nobody's opinions necessarily changed, but it was just such a nice discussion. I was like, wow, this is fantastic. This is what I like. This is well, this is what sitting around yeah. having coffee with your friends and being able to have a discussion. I mean, this is what your show's about. I mean, so yeah, that's a good example. Like Neo Dark. I mean, as far as Catherine Bigelow movies, where does it rank? Where you're asking, I'm going to rank it pretty, pretty towards the bottom, certainly. Um, so I would agree with you on that. On the other hand, I think it's a pretty decent movie. You know, if you sat me in front of it, I would be, I would enjoy it. Uh-huh. So I clearly don't hate it, like some things that I hate. But you know, it's um. Do you think some of those things could just be purely subjective rather than objective? Could they just be? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, we talk a lot on the show about the nostalgia factor. I mean, I I love the movie Free Jack. Is it a bad movie? Yeah, it's a horrible movie, but I love that movie. So when you say you love it, that's a function of when it came out and the age you were when it came out? Is that what you I mean think so. And then just stupid things like the way that Mick Jagger says uh, furlong and just stupid stuff like that. I'm just like, this is a goofy freaking movie, but I really like this. Why do you think that uh, people – academic kind of people don't really take seriously the thing you're talking about now sort of the pleasure aspect of movies why do you or they they tend to kind of sell it short with the, with the important exception of pauline kale of course pauline kale oversold that she made that everything <laughs> that was her one great flaw but at very at the least i'll give her credit she come didn't she put that on the map and sort of saying this is an aspect of movies that's important this pleasure aspect yeah i think um, so why do you think it is that, that people kind of tend to sort of dismiss that? I don't know if they necessarily dismiss it or they overly embrace it, and it just becomes this blind faith for movies. Um, I think more of the professional, and I'm doing air quotes, professional critics might try to distance themselves that way, or they might try to couch things and you know try to defend things because that they like by liking them or for liking them in other things. And they'll be like, oh, well, the cinematography was fantastic or whatever. It's like, yeah, just come out and say, yeah, it's a stupid movie, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, but I don't think we have a really good critical language for... Um, no. For, uh, are you, am I right about that? There's like a problem. But I think that that's a... But, you know, I, don't, I think it's a problem for, in criticism. What I mean is that I don't think it's the I don't think it's the flaw in the nature of the critical project itself, which I think uh-huh. is wonderful. I think it's critics not having done their job in that way over maybe 50, 60 years. And I think it actually might be connected to certain residu- residual I don't run this by you what you think, residual hierarchies, like the fact that it's not a text, it's not a written word. Mm. Could that be it? Like, I think there's a, like, you know, for example, uh, there's all these very late essays on photography that are very anxious about, is photography have any decency to it? Or is it, or is it suspect, right? Whether it's Susan Sontag's on photography or whether it's George Bernard Shaw's photography. Um, I think those are both wonderful things on photography, but do you think it, it's kind of that? It's kind of like a latent, I don't know what the, I don't know if it's elitism or kind of about a genre or the fact that, Cinema is something everybody looks at. Yeah, I mean, it is the most democratic uh, art <laughs> art form. Right, you know, it's, right. it's not like we're all yeah. rushing to see the latest performance art every weekend or the latest unveiling of a new sculpture or painting or, to your point, of pottery or anything. It is That is serving so many masters as far as being a work of art, sometimes being 
pure entertainment sometimes or being enter- art that is disguises entertainment. And then, you know, you have to feed the beast. I mean, there are very few movies that are being made purely for the love of cinema without having to make a profit. So does that mean you admire all the more somebody like Tom Noonan, who, who carves out space for him to do his own projects that are purely... Like, oh hell like yeah! The, like he the one, or yeah. Soderbergh, where it's like one for you, one for me. I mean, uh-huh. I love that model. I might not necessarily love every Soderbergh film. Right. I mean, for God's sake, Ocean Twelve. Oh, yeah. forget yeah. it. Yeah. But you know, he knows what sells and and yeah, does. does a great job. And then goes out and does whatever the hell he wants. I mean, who who makes Schizopolis and makes <laughs> Kafka? You know, I mean, it's yeah. freaking amazing. I like I love those it. movies a lot. I like yeah. those movies a lot. Um, He's clearly a gifted filmmaker. Oh, well, hell yeah. While on the subject of naming names, who are some other filmmakers where you'll say, hell yeah, this person's a master or great, could be living or dead? Who come pops into your mind? I know you've had William Freakin on your show, and by God, talk about a storyteller, right? Oh, hell yeah. That and guy's such a raconteur. Well, Freakin is like a showman. He's like an entertainer. So there's, I almost think there's like two built, William Freakins. There's Freakin, the filmmaker, and then kind of like John Waters, he's this Freakin, the kind of the orator. Right. Story well, it's like Bogdanovich. Oh, is Bogdanovich that way too? You find him kind oh, of yeah. little, you know. Oh, yeah. I mean, he's, he's so steeped in a whole old Hollywood. And like hearing him actually talk about his projects rather than talk about John Ford or Howard Hawks yeah. or Orson Welles, it's like you've got very two different people talking about those things. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess Freakin comes to mind first, but I guess, I guess um, Bogdanovich is a good talker too. I had oh, forgotten, yeah. I had forgotten about him. As a talker, I mean, you get guys to talk on your show, or women, or or who often, on first glance, you might not think of as great talkers, but they become kind of great talkers on your show. Mm. Like they start talking. I think it's a set system that you have. You get. I think it's you have a way of getting people to to get going. Like I was just listening to the More American Graffiti, right? And just Candy Clark just comes alive when she talks about you know her introduction to Hollywood and the people she met. She's just oh, she was such a dream. Yeah, she's uh, and I and I think that could part of that's her, but I think part of it is your format. I don't know what it is. It's just the way you kind of get people to. Maybe it's comfort. Maybe she's she's comfortable with the people on that show. Comfortable, and they just kind of open up. Um, you've had her on before, right? For Nicholas Rogue, right? No, actually, that was the first time that we chatted. Um, we we had chatted. Like um, uh, off the record, years and years ago, I had asked her if she would be on an episode because I love the film Citizens Band. Love oh, Jonathan that's one Banks. of my all-time favorite movies. Right? Oh my god, Paula so Matt. Paula yeah. Matt is oh god. Don't get me started. Handle oh, with I, care. Yeah. Oh god, but see again, I'm not trying. But seeing that on the big screen in the actual Grindhouse theater, oh, day, yeah. that was I have to say that was just beautiful because you oh, were watching the else. film. You were watching the film with basically truckers. Yeah. Like out of seeing out enjoying a movie, they weren't like they weren't cinema people. They were people that like this was that they did for a living, and they really were. But I mean, it's those are the glory days of going to movies, the '70s and, and '80s, I think, of going and when movies were like a religious experience, and the theater's dark, and you're going to see. Citizens Band, but anyhow, I talk. I'm talking too much. But go ahead. Was it? Oh, so it was for it was for that film, or was for? Well, I, I uh, emailed her and I was like, "Hey, I, I want to have you on." It was actually it was uh, it was a twofer because I, I had been slowly working on a book, very slowly for 
God knows how many years about um, Ellie Gould and his films from the 1970s. And uh, I'm desperately looking for, you know, people who are still alive that were in these films. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'm like, hey, Candy Clark, you were in, and I'm I'm probably going to be wrong, but I think she was in um, I Love My Wife. And I was like, hey, can you tell me about this? And she calls me up out of the blue because my phone number is on every email. She calls me up and she's just like, yeah, I didn't really have that much to say about that movie. I, I was on there really briefly. And she basically was, she was, she was so sweet. She's calling me up to blow me off. And I'm just like, wow, thank you. And then I'm like, well, you know, I was also going to do an episode about Handle with Care. And she's like, yeah, you know, that movie didn't really make any money. I didn't enjoy it. I was like, oh, interesting. okay. So I'm like, I'm sorry, but then all these years later, I'm like, well, hey, I'm doing this episode about more American graffiti, and I'm also doing one about uh, the man who fell to Earth, and I know she loves she loves man who fell to Earth. Oh yeah, maybe she'll talk about that. So yeah, she got right back to me. You know, this time she didn't call me; she emailed me. She's like, yeah, no problem. We set up a time and. God, she was so easy to talk to. And I was afraid because of that previous phone call. I was just like, oh, she's going to, like, it, because I ease in, I think, at the end of the uh, <laughs> the, the end of the conversation yeah. about Man Who Fell to Earth, I ease into Handle with Care. Oh, yeah. And then she starts to talk about it. I'm like, okay, thank God. Well, you did it. You did it in the right way. And she opened yeah. up about it because, you again, this is the Mike White system. <laughs> it's a system. This is, I mean, it's, it's you're being. It's organic. It's not affected. It comes out of you, but it's a way of getting things to happen. Just like you got, heck, you got Nicholas Rogue to go on and on for like how long did he talk? He doesn't. He doesn't rest in peace. One of the greatest filmmakers, Nicholas oh, Rogue. So you, you got him on your show, and he went into a stream of consciousness. Am I right? On yeah. your show, talk about that. What were you? He was like there was no. There, does he speak in commas or there are there? Sen- it's it's a way of speaking. Yeah, he he just went there, and I was like, okay. <laughs> well, what do you want to look up? When was that? What felt was it? Is it is essential obsession a bad timing, or was it? Yeah, yeah, it was for bad timing. Yeah, uh, I mean, I would have done more, and I probably will do more of his films. I know, actually, going back to Maitland, she's writing a book about performance, so she I is? can't wait for that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I hope I didn't let a cat out of the bag, but I don't think I did. Um, I, mean, I, know, and, I know I'm going to buy and read it. I still oh, have yeah. her book on um, on the Argento's early film, the Crystal Plumage, I think. Or, oh, or yeah. She wrote that whole Broken Minds, Broken Mirrors Broken thing. Broken Minds, yeah. Broken Mirrors, which is still on my cinema shelf. Oh, so yeah. That, that means I think that highly easy. of it. She's up there with um, Jonathan Rosenbaum and, you know, and, and – uh, any any Manny Farber or anybody else she could think yeah. of. I think she's that good. Anyhow, but so but did you know he was gonna go go off like that? I mean that no. was kind of No. And what were you <laughs> what were you thinking? Like I mean I, I started writing down what he was talking about, but it was something about what was it? It was something about changes in how you film something or Yeah, I think I, I I'll be hundred percent honest. I'm not sure if I understood everything that he was saying. Yeah. I if I am 100% honest, I'll tell you one of the things that was going through my mind is I have to get to work because I had to call him at 8 o'clock in the morning on a work day because he's in England. He wanted to do it on a weekday. So I'm just like, okay. And he talked for probably an hour and I'm just like, oh shit, I'm going to be late for work. But that's okay. I mean, the sacrifices we have to make. Wow. 
for Nicholas Rogue. Did you tell him that that you were late for work? No, no, I'm not about, about to, about to tell, tell him that. that. No, no. no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Anyone who is generous with their time, and that's sure, the thing I always thank people for, is sure. thanking them for their time because no one is making any money off of this show, yeah. me included. Yeah, so geez. I'm not, you know, I've actually had people, I, I probably won't name names, but I've had people say like, okay, well, you know, what, what do you, uh, they'll ask it in a weird way. Like I actually, one of my friends, Chris, he just got asked the other day, uh, is there an honorarium for this? And it's like, no. And then, uh, somebody would ask like, um, what do you charge for interviews? And I always respond, nothing. They're absolutely free. I will, I will never charge anyone to interview them. <laughs> yeah. So we won't talk about the whole stipend thing that I have to pay you to be on this podcast, but I mean, I'm being we'll observed, leave that on the cutting room floor. I'm being totally observed when I talk about mentioning to Nick Rogue about your, your, your job, but, but – um, there's something about him as a person that leads me to think you could almost mention that. You could mention that to him, and it would make it for an interesting conversation. I have no idea why. But. He was so fantastic. I was so lucky. I mean, I cut my, cut my lucky stars for so many people that I've had the pleasure. I mean, just the other day, this kind of is going to date this episode, but just the other day was Sid Haig passing away. Oh. He was... One of the best interviews, and I uh, was so lucky. I got to interview that guy three times over my yeah. career, and I was just, you know, he was so generous with his time and so nice. Well, talk about a man who was prolific as an actor. Oh, yeah, and no ego. That well, guy had... not only that, but he worked so much. Oh, yeah. Did the guy ever sleep? I mean, what was the schedule? I'm sure you got into I haven't listened to Spider Baby. Was that the show you – so is it going to be um... – what movies did you did you cover of, of his? So the did first time I talked to him, it was actually for a print interview, and it was for I think it was Cashier's to Cinemart number seventeen. Yeah. And I was uh, he was a guest of honor at a film festival in Port Huron, Michigan. Okay. And one of the things that one of the the, the people that ran the film festival, they're just like, hey, Mike, do you want to talk to Sid Hay? And I was like, well, yeah, of course I do. So they arranged it. So we got to sit down at the Thomas Edison Inn and talk for probably, probably talk for about an hour or so. And I just got to ask him whatever I wanted. So I was asking a lot about his early days working with Jack Hill, asking a little bit about working with Graydon Clark. with Because uh, actually I had seen him years before i had uh, was doing an event with graden down in uh indiana and here comes sid haig as we're setting up the table here comes sid haig and he just starts walking up to him and he's like should i put my dancing shoes on and i'm like oh that's a that's a uh reference to lombada the forbidden dance <laughs> I'm like, okay, that's cool. And he's just like shooting the shit with Graydon. I just make myself scarce because I'm not about to glom on and be like, oh, I'm Graydon's friend. Uh, but yeah, got to talk to him about working with Graydon. Yeah. Got to hear his side of the story, why his character is mute in the Forbidden Dance. 
But yeah, just all these amazing stories, like all of like him going over to uh, the Philippines and learning the the ropes over there, like who to tip and who not to tip, and how he would uh, you know constantly be handing out uh, dollar bills to all the people that worked at the the hotel that he stayed at, and then by the time he came back the next time to shoot. Everybody at the hotel knew him and would have his, you know, morning paper, his coffee, and his breakfast all ready for him every single day. And he was like, they treated me like a king just because I gave them respect and I gave them a buck. Well, it's, it's funny. We're both talking about exploitation films now, which is a word I really hate and I really don't like. What's your feeling about that word? I never, I never really know. Never eh. that. I mean, I, I can't say it's necessarily a genre, but at least it gives you some sort of basis on what to talk about. I know some people really hate the term black exploitation because it's like I was not exploited making these films. They're very positive for African-American images. And I'm like, yes, I understand that. But it's way less of a mouthful full than to say action films from the 1970s starring a primarily African-American cast. You know, it's sum it so up in one word. <laughs> so you say it's like a kind of a taxonomic shorthand. Yeah. I mean, you say nudie cuties, you say exploitation yeah. films. But, I, mean, I, I, I just want to press on this because I'm not, yeah. because nudie cutie, I mean, I'm not really sure what that really means. Like, so for, so example, like I get, there are, there are films that have high sexual content, Right. Right. And then there are so that would be like a sexploitation film right. that is independent, smaller budget, right. and like a Joe you're talking, Sarno picture, like Sin in the Suburbs or Joe exactly, Sarno. yeah. But, and but then you get into like Ruffies, which mm-hmm. are you know a little harder edge, and maybe yeah. you're talking who is it, Roberta Finlay, or mm-hmm. just a little harder action. But yeah, I mean Sarno, my God, that guy, what they call the uh, Igmar Bergman of Forty Second Street, his films are. Gorgeous to look at. Yeah, the, there's a beautiful, his beautiful black and white movie uh, about the budding filmmaker that's like having an identity crisis. Do you know what this one? It's from '69. Oh, God. why is my brain freezing? It's like very Bergman. It's very the black and white is incredible in this film, and I can't think of the name of the damn damn thing. Um, and knowing you, you probably saw it in the theater. No, I'm not that. No, this was 60, oh, okay. so that would have been, been, been age four. Or, oh, okay. No, actually, I've been age, so I'm definitely not. I want to make things clear. I started seeing movies, you know, with my dad, um, sort of like eight, ages seven, eight, nine, ten, not not as a toddler. No, I wasn't a baby. So this is older Sarno, so that's true. But that, I appreciate that. But you're, you're not too far off. But, but, uh, but, um, uh, but, you know, if, if somebody didn't know about these films, do you think it's possible that these labels might turn them off or they might avoid something that they might actually like because of the kind of the, I don't know, the associations which are kind of false? That's all I mean. It's sort of like you talk about nudie cutie. I mean, some of those movies might actually be kind of like good movies. Oh, yeah. They just happen to have nudity in them. Some right. of them might be kind of junk. And so I guess the problem with these labels is they don't really help you to really – they're kind. They're kind of. I don't know. They're just kind of. I never really I mean, know whether they're valid. There's junk in any genre, you know. Yeah, I mean, uh, what, what, what do they call the H.G. Uh, Lewis, the gore films, you know? And it's yeah. like I love those movies. You did. And some gore films are absolute garbage, and others are, to me, absolutely brilliant. I mean, I love Blood Feast. I love Color Me Blood Red. I mean, there are so many good movies in that. 
thing. I mean, I'm just talking uh, H.G. Lewis right now, but I know that there were other gore films, and some of them were pretty terrible. So you like calling me blood, blood red about the failed artist, and yeah. the failed painter has to start, you know. I mean, yeah, it's right up there with Bucket of Blood. Right. But it's I mean, pretty much the same story. It is the same. So if somebody... Um, what would you have to say to somebody? Because I, I kind of, I'm kind of weird. I kind of want to turn on people to these things that that might otherwise be kind of afraid of them. And that's kind mm. of. I mean, I'm not saying that's a project I actually engage in, but I often think, hmm, you know, how can we get these movies a larger audience or get people to? I don't know. That's kind of a strange, a strange well, idea. I mean, that's you know, one of the goals of my my show is to oh, okay. try to talk about things in a hopefully somewhat maybe a little intelligent manner yeah. and try to you know take away the mystique a little bit and say like yeah there's this whole world that maybe you're not necessarily familiar with like i'm not familiar like i said before with cinema novo i'm not familiar with you know there's tons of filmmakers where i'm just like i've never seen a movie by this guy and i really want to so, yeah, let's talk about it. And hopefully me being somewhat of a novice and then also having read up on some of this stuff as much as I possibly can, it's like, yeah, they can hopefully learn through me being an idiot saying like, oh, yeah, okay, if this guy can understand this, then maybe I can too. And it sounds like there's something of merit here. So while, while we're, we're getting, I think, towards the end of this this uh, wonderful episode because you're talking about your system and your, your method. I'm going to throw some things at you and see what you come up with. If you had to name three exploitation films other than Black Shampoo that come to your mind that are must-sees and any could be action, it could be horror, what comes to mind that you want, say, want people to see this film just to think of? Oh, gosh. Um, tough, I, I mean, I love Orgy of the Dead. Okay. It is absolutely ridiculous, and there are parts of it that will bore you to tears, but it is just such a sight to see, and just that dialogue is so amazingly wooden, and it's just so much fun, you know? Um, I love The Mac. The Mac is a very strange film for me because I always describe it as being less than the sum of its parts because I love the parts to it but as a whole I don't think it necessarily holds together but god there are some amazing parts to that and that score that Willie Hutch score oh yeah, good music. lord yeah and then uh, kind of keeping on that exploitation tip I'll say coffee which we haven't done on the show yet but oh. coffee man oh man that is such a fantastic film yeah it's a superb film you're gonna have I, Pam, you're gonna have Pam Gur on, I hope, and discuss coffee. I had Pam Kerr on for an episode, and I would love to have her back because we ended up talking about one that she did recently called Bad Grannies, uh -huh. and it's one of those like, hey, here's this new film with Pam Gur. Do you want to talk to her? Of course, I want to talk to her. But then we mostly, you know, like you gotta play the game, and I was just like, okay, I'll talk to you mostly about Bad Grannies. I will ask you about. How You Knew Russ Meyer. I mean, there's another amazing filmmaker right there. It's like, how did you know Russ Meyer? How were you in, in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? Why don't I see you? Wow. <laughs> those, those kind of things. And But I didn't talk about coffee because I knew that I would talk to her for probably a half an hour, and I only had 20 minutes. And that's one thing that I think folks need to understand, too, is like, you know, I recently interviewed Leslie Ann Warren, and if I have my druthers, 
I would have talked to that lady for probably four hours because she is amazing. But I had to, you 20 to minutes. Leslie Ann Warren, for what film? Was it for Choose Me? No, it was for a new movie that she's in called Three Days with Dad. So it's one of those, like, the press is going to set it up. I'm going to do my job, but I'm also going to sneak in some questions and say, tell me about Color of Night. Let's talk a little bit about Alan Rudolph. Let's talk a little bit about It's a Bird, It's a Plane, It's Superman the Musical. But you got to sneak that stuff in and then say, okay, now let's talk about the movie that you're here to promote. <laughs> about the movie. Yeah. Any, anything you want to say about Leslie Ann Warren? When's that show going to – gonna? Um... Uh, just dropped yesterday. Oh, excellent. Yeah. Excellent. i got to watch that. Listen to that. So, yeah, I talked to her, and I talked to Larry Clark, who is not the creepy Larry Clark, but the nice guy whose name Larry Clark, who actually directed that one. And he, same thing, he was in uh, the last season of Twin Peaks, so of course i got to ask him about that, because I'm a huge David Lynch fan. So you've watched The Return? Oh, fuck yeah. Yeah, same here. It's tremendous. It's a tremendous oh. film. What was that, episode 8? The uh, the one with the woodsman and the whole nuclear explosion. Yes, it's really. Oh, it's that's really one of the best, best things I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, I don't think there's anything quite, anything quite like it. I, no. I think I think I think he actually topped himself. I think it's his strongest film filmmaking. Oh yeah, actually, and that's Those, a lot. Yeah. Oh yeah. Those episodes are some of my favorite episodes that I've done. Are the David Lynch ones? Yep. Yep. So, so those are we just talked about. It, but if you had to pick a, a kind of an alternative or avant-garde type movie, uh, that style film, if that's if that's a fair uh, category, two or three that you would recommend, say you must see this. What what comes to mind in that in that? Or... Uh, does Possession count? The Zulawski film. I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Or I mean, if you want to get really nutty, go see uh, On the Silver Globe. That'll that'll mess you up. Um, same thing I would say for uh, with the Holy Mountain. I had a brilliant time talking about the Holy Mountain, and that's a movie that you can just keep digging into forever. Um, and then I'm going to go a little nuts. I'm going to say Haxon, because I consider that pretty avant-garde, especially for when it was made. And that movie still packs a punch. And I, I mean, I'll probably sit down and watch it over uh, Halloween this year. Uh-huh. Okay, uh, so what what about somebody who says the funniest movie, comedy, 30s or 40s, or comedy uh, that period, or maybe modern comedy? Uh, 30s and 40s, you're talking, you're talking arsenic and old lace. Okay. Love that film. Okay. Um, I mean, God, Peter Lorre, uh, Cary Grant, I mean, Cary Grant's comic timing was just so good, and to that end... I mean, His Girl Friday is one of those movies that I just appreciate more every single time I see it. So you would say His Girl Friday more than Bringing Up Baby? or? You know, I still haven't really clicked with Bringing Up Baby. I need to try it again. That one and uh, The Philadelphia Story, I need to try those movies again. Philadelphia Story is one of my favorite movies of all time. Oh, wow. And I actually have... And now, like, 40-page essay on that film. That's oh, wow, that's great. Sitting in my drawer. That's how much I love that movie. I don't want to go into, again, that's, that's, a whole, that's another topic another time, but just throwing that out there. It's a movie I happen to really love. Um, it's a great one. Um, what about 50s, 60s for comedy? Um, gosh, that's a good one. I mean, I'm trying to think of 
what I, cause I'm not a big fan of like the overblown ones. Like it's a mad, 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 mad world. I never have gotten into that movie. I mean, I, I tend to go more for like 70s stuff with, um, you know, blazing saddles and young Frankenstein. Yeah. Well, how about dramas of fifties and sixties? If you think like a melodrama, like what? Oh God, like, like the Cirque stuff, yeah, like Leave It to Heaven or some of those. What would you pick, pick out of those? Um, I can't. I would say that that's another blind spot. I don't know that much about those movies, and I, I've, I think I've seen more Cirque than I realize. Uh-huh. But I only saw a few of those for like a women in uh, cinema class. Right. So and we saw the classics. Yeah, we saw like now Voyager and Mildred Pierce, and um, yeah, we saw at least I think Lieber to Heaven is the one. The one with uh, was that Lana Turner in that? Oh, I can't remember. Imitation no, of life. Uh, Imitation of Life. Thank you. But what was Lieber to Heaven? That was um, who was the woman who was running the bookstore across the street that uh, Bogart went to in The Big Sleep. Because it was that lady was in. Oh, it's, uh, you're talking about Lauren Bacall? No, the one who ran the bookstore across the street, um, who she looks much better without her glasses on, is what he tells her. Oh, I don't know who that is. Who is that? I'm going to find out in just a second. Find out. Um, yeah. So you're talking about you're talking about in the big sleep. Um, so that's Dorothy Malone, Dorothy who works Malone. across the street. That's right. And then she was in Written on the, the Wind. Written on the Wind. That's what yeah. it is. Thank you. Whew. Written on the Wind is... Um, it, a lot of people, that's their favorite Cirque. Oh, that's the one for sure that I saw, and I really enjoyed it. their favorite Cirque. Um, how do you feel about Bigger Than Life by Nicholas Ray? You know, I haven't seen that one yet. Okay. I'm kind of making my way through his filmography. I mean, I can't, it's, it's hard to not just go back to, um, uh, oh God, why am I forgetting the name? In a Lonely Place. I mean, that movie oh, wow. just, it kicks my ass every single oh, time. Yeah. I love it. Yeah. Don't you just want to kind of, when you see something like In a Lonely Place, want to tell everybody about it? Oh, yeah. Go out and see it. Is yeah, it that's in why a lonely, we did an episode it, on it. In a Lonely Place, uh, a relevant film for 2019? Oh, hell yes. It's totally undated, right? It could be made about things this morning in, in human... Don't you think in America and human... Well, that and then uh, the book, which is so different. No screenwriters involved in the book, but my yeah. God, that book is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you've got great taste, and uh, I hate saying goodbye, Mike White, but every show has to come to an end, and this show has to come to an end. <laughs> And I really well, loved having you on, and I and I like you as a as a as a role model and inspiration for you know having a show of with that has high curiosity and respect for the guests, and lets the guests unfold and talk about what's important to them, and the movies. And I appreciate what you're doing uh, immensely. So thank, well, thank you, you so much for having me on. This was great. Uh, thank you. And if uh, any questions, you want to do this again sometime and talk about a movie, let me know. All right. I'll do it. Fantastic. Sounds like you got some great tips as well, my friend. Thank you. All right. Have a good day. All right. Oh, hey. Uh, I will shoot you a link to my audio if you want to use it. Thank you. I greatly appreciate that. Okay. Sounds good. All right.